Assalamu alaikum, dear brothers and sisters. As part of our project, Diamonds of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we talk to Hazrats, Imams, Sheikhs, and scholars of Islam. And today we're going to talk to Aydar Garifuddinovich Hayruddinov. Aydar Garifuddinovich is a member of the group of authors who prepared and published their own variant of the Quran translation. Aydar Garifuddinovich, please tell us more about your work on the translation of the Quran. Our work began in 2009. If we count that only in 2022 we issued the final version that we had planned, then quite a lot of time has passed. There were in total four people involved in the work. The project manager, the ideological inspirer, so to speak, the developer of the methodology, Ayrat Ravilovich Bakhtiyarov, and me as a translator. We also had two assistants. One of them was Ulugbek Artikov, also a noble translator from Arabic, who in Soviet times worked in Soviet diplomatic missions in Arab countries. And Kulfiya Hanum, who worked for us on an equal basis, sitting at the table for many years, doing text corrections and translation, among other things. We have managed, I believe, to combine in our work a linguistic grammatical approach. That is, we have been very strict about the meanings of words, very strict about the observance of the rules of grammar, and about correctly conveying syntax rules. And at the same time, I believe, we managed to decipher Quranic imagery. There are many translations of the Quran. Please tell us, what prompted you to do another translation? Since I am engaged in Islam and believe in Allah, of course I have not ignored the main source of Islam, the Quran. When I worked with it, diving into this book, newer and newer meanings were revealed to me, and I understood rather quickly that the existing translations of the Qur'an contain a lot of mistakes, as well as distortions, which look normal in the translation, but they do not correspond at all to what is written in the original text of Qur'an. I have put some of my thoughts in my books, and thanks to one of my works, we met with Ayrat Ravilovich Bakhtiyarov. Then our two desires, his desire to translate the Qur'an's images and my desire to propose my own variant of translation with a minimum of mistakes, coincided at this moment. Speaking of Musa Bigiev, the madrasa, where he started in his childhood and adolescent years, is not far from here. I suggest we go there and continue our conversation in that setting. Okay, let's go. We had such an intention that, when we started our work, we piled on existing translations of the Quran. There are many, in fact. Our translation into Russian was the 35th, as far as I know, the 35th translation of the Quran. Of course, we didn't collect all 34, 
but several of the most common translations of the Quran were lying on our desk and we assumed that we would refer to them often, because the authority of the translators is very high. Krychkovsky alone is worth a lot, but in the process of our work we suddenly began to discover that the translation we were taking for comparison or to solve some difficult points of translation did not correspond to what is written in the Quran. It was a shock, really. Along with this came a realization where problem that needs to be solved. Why do such discrepancies arise? Meaning there is a discrepancy between translations of the Quran and the Quran itself. I have had many ways to answer this question, but here is the last one. Life itself prompted me. When our translation of the Quran was published and people found out about it, there was an outside question. Is this translation of the Quran approved by the spiritual directorate of Muslims? And then I wondered, what does is our translation approved by the spiritual directorate of Muslims mean? We need to understand that there is a very deep ancient tradition in Islam, tafsirs of the Quran. A tafsir is a description of a commentary on the Quran. That is, some eminent scholar would sit down and comment on the Quran, based on his knowledge, his worldview, his spiritual state above all, of course, and his intellectual abilities. In the world of Islam, it developed over time that the tafsirs of the most authoritative of these, let's call them theologians, acquired the status of almost the holy scriptures. It even got to the point, I told this in my interviews, that Muslims, a tradition arose that a Muslim does not turn to the Qur'an, does not read the Qur'an, but try to understand the Qur'an itself, even though he may be an Arab, and Arabic is his native language. He has to read the tafsir anyway. That is how high the authority of these tafsirs was, that they overshadowed the Qur'an. And so to this question, is our translation approved? I have a counter-question. What are the criteria that it may or may not be approved? If the criteria are that does our translation of the Qur'an correspond to what the translators of the Qur'an wrote in their tafsirs, if the criteria for selection, correctness and other parameters of the translation are determined on the basis of tafsirs, then, excuse me, it is absurdity, because in that case we shouldn't translate the Qur'an, we should translate the tafsirs, or what? That is, someone said, wrote a tafsir, in this tafsir there may be very, let's say, radical, extremist things may be voiced. They wrote in their time, based on their considerations, on that political and social situation, that is, they presented these views as the actual precepts of the Qur'an. And now we have to blindly follow these tafsirs. Where is the translation of the Qur'an itself then? And here I come to the point of why translations of the Qur'an do not correspond to the Qur'an itself. And now, please note, 
I'm not talking about tafsirs, I'm talking about translations. And the point is that the translators, as I understand it, they used tafsirs as well, apparently, in order to better understand the Quran itself. Since the tafsirs were written by ancient scholars who had an excellent knowledge of Arabic, the translators apparently hoped for help of these very interpreters of the Quran in the linguistic sense, in the sense of understanding of the images. But these commentaries used by the translators served them a disservice, that is, they transferred into their translations all the mistakes that were contained in these tafsirs. One of the features of our Qur'an, when we realize that translations do not help us, that is, we cannot rely on them, we can only use them to solve difficult moments, and most likely even for understanding that we reach some difficult point. And when other translators reach some certain point in the translation in the Qur'anic text, they stooped to it, and many just overstepped. Many of them solved incorrectly, many solved in some other way. That is, we have seen firsthand that translations carry the influence of tafsirs, for one thing. Second, translations don't solve difficult points. The tafsirs were also full of such points. By the way, Begiv, whom we talked about, gives a lot of examples in his words that even interpreters of the Quran, who were famous for their scholarship, their level of knowledge of Arabic, their level of knowledge of Islamic theology and all the other sciences, they failed at certain moments when they did not translate or neglected some difficult points in the Qur'an. Although, in reality, there is no complexity there, it is just that these Qur'anic points contradicted their ideas. Did you understand? So it turned out that their ideas were more important than the ideas that Allah offered us to learn. And that's how they got around the difficult points. And of course, it got into the tafsirs, and through the tafsirs it got into translations. The peculiarity of our translation is that we moved away from all the translations and all the tafsirs after all. We said, no guys, this is not helping us as it turns out, although it was a shock really, because for centuries Muslims have been guided by tafsirs. Translators have even been guided by tafsirs, as we can see. And the result is that mistakes are replicated. Given the fact that you have encountered discrepancies between your translation and the tafsirs, could you elaborate on the methodological side of your work? The methodology of this work is the most interesting. Let's start with the little things. First of all, we used a literal translation. It was important for us to restore the original meaning of every word in the Qur'an. Not just words, but particles and endings, grammatical points. And at the same time, we were making a transliteration of this text so that people who don't know Arabic could in a more or less familiar carry of sounds I developed my own system for transcribing the sounds of the Qur'an there, so that people could somehow articulate what they were reading. That's one of the points, the nuances. There is no such thing in tafsirs. It's usually designed for people who already know Arabic, so they don't bother with that. Another interesting thing was that when we came across something so tricky in terms of meaning, we used to work with one ayah, which was one sentence or two sentences. We used to work with it for four hours. 
Usually, we would work for three or four hours a day. It used to take us the whole day to work through one ayah. And we couldn't work it out. That is, we couldn't work it out till the end. A whole day could pass and you couldn't figure out one ayah. Well, not a whole day, but three or four hours, as long as we work. We would come back the next day and we would start with the same ayah. It asked, it was also a methodological approach. If we didn't analyze one place, we would not go any further. We would dive back into this moment and try to figure it out. Here, of course, we picked up all the translations, all the tafsirs we had on hand. We saw how they were doing and we were sure that this issue was not resolved there as well. So, fate had decided that we would have to solve it. We kept digging. It would seem that on the next day we came to some kind of decision. So we wrote it down. Say we translated it, and then we moved forward a bit. For how much time remained? Maybe by one or two or three ayat. Then we went home, and then at home. This walk was done subconsciously, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it happened in my dreams, and bang. And the solution came to me of how this situation should unfold how to get out of this linguistic situation. And the next day, I ran to my translation job excited and suggested my insight. And at that moment, Irat Ravilovich also had his own variant. Sometimes they came together very easily. Sometimes they had to be reconciled just a little bit and the matter was resolved with some, I don't know, supernatural involvement. We are absolutely calm here in terms of our conscience, because we made sure that at this very moment on which we spent several days working, all the other Nefasias and interpreters were also trapped, and I say they were either overstepping by not addressing these issues, or they were offering the wrong option. And we saw that one translation translated white and another translation translated black. That is, diametrically opposite conclusions were drawn from the same ayah. And that gave us peace of mind that if others were stuck here making a mistake and not solving this problem, and were moving on, then we also faced this problem for a reason, and we solved it after all. Now, the other side of the world. We put it there for public judgment, and above all, of course, for the judgment of specialists. I'm not talking about religious specialists, but I'm talking about experts on the Qur'an's text, such as more secular scholars, because from the point of view of purely Arabic linguistics and translation studies, how they will perceive and evaluate all this is very important to us. It will be very important to know the opinion of specialists in linguistics, those who deal with translations of the Qur'an. And now we have come to a very memorable place. This building is 250 years old. This is the building of the madrasa where Musa Begiev started in the late 19th century. The Kasimiya Madrasa, or as it was called otherwise, Apanaevskaya or Kulbuya Madrasa. This is where Lake Kaban is not far away. Now, thanks to the cooperation of enthusiasts, our Islamic clergy and city authorities, we've managed to restore the building. A full-fledged madrasa is now in operation here. 
continuing the traditions of the pre-revolutionary madrasa where Musa Begiev studied. His older brother, by the way, also studied here, and many other representatives of the Tata intelligentsia and clergymen came out of this madrasa. I want to symbolically close two stories here. Begiv, who began to receive, let's say, a systematic Islamic education in this madrasa when he was very young, in 1909, he was in Kazan and made a big speech about the mistakes in the Quran, in Kazan editions of the Quran. It was about the typographical errors. There was a lot of noise. But in the end, the issue was resolved very positively. Everyone recognized the rightness of Begiev. And in 1912, Musa Begiev proposed his translation of the Quran into the Tata language. He was met with hostility by the majority of mullahs of traditionalist persuasion, who began to write complaints to the Mufti. As a result, the translation was not allowed to appear, although a publishing house had agreed on the volume of translation, circulation, where it would go, and so on. So the finished work was killed at the root, let's say. And in the end, this translation, the manuscript of this translation, was lost, and we still can't find it. It is a very great loss if we don't find it. But then, our translation of the Quran came out in 2022. I was involved in the legacy of Begiev. This whole story is close to me, and it was Allah's will that I took part in this project of independent translation of the images of the Quran into Russian. I want to symbolically close these two stories against the background of this amazing historic building where Musa Begiev began his journey into Islamic science. Aydar Gafudinovich, earlier you said that you could spend several days on one ayah. Could you give a concrete example for our viewers? There are a lot of such examples, and I will gladly share some of them. So let's start. Ilshad, let me introduce you first. This is the first approach. We start here with the table of transliteration science, which we've developed so that a person who doesn't know Arabic can articulate somehow. Here we start with the first surah, the opening surah, Al-Fatiha. This is the site where we have it all in the form of Arabic words, and it goes to this page. What is here in the Arabic language? It fits completely here. So if you open any part of the Quran, any fragment of the Quran that was included on this site here into columns, will look like this in the translation. Now the second column we have is a transliteration just based on those transliteration signs, so that people can articulate. And here is a literal translation of each word. That's about how mechanically, in a technical sense, we have framed it. Everything that does not refer to the text of the Quran, but is our commentary, is put down as page footnotes. And since we're talking about examples, you asked the question, what are some examples of complexity? I kept a notebook where I noted some of these things, and I wrote them out. But really, it's a never-ending topic, and we could talk about it for hours and write volumes of books. For example, in one of the ayat, there is the concept of the illiterate prophet. 
it is usually translated that the Prophet is illiterate. Ummi. We have tried to look into it because, based on the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we know that he drove caravans, that he was a merchant, not only his own, but the woman he married, Hadija, he drove her caravans. That is, he was responsible for her goods was a clerk, one might say, a steward. Can you imagine a merchant handing over his goods to a man who can't count, can't write? Well, it's not realistic, is it? I mean, what does the concept of ummi mean? It does not mean a person who cannot read or write in the sense that we understand illiteracy. In the literal sense, yes, it does not mean that one cannot read or write. It means that one doesn't have systematic religious knowledge. The Arabs have always lived in full view of the Jewish community and the Christian community, those who had profound religious knowledge and an elaborate system of religious science. If a person was knowledgeable in these areas, he could not be called ummi. He was not a commoner, he was an educated man. And the fact that a common Arab and the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was just a commoner from among common Arabs, he could read and write, but he did not study in any religious schools, he did not receive religious knowledge, he did not read religious books, and therefore he is called Ummi. That is, he did not have this level of knowledge which distinguishes the educated from the uneducated. Because at that time an Arab could know a huge number of, let's say, oral folk tales, fairy tales, legends, poems, they were all poets, it was an honorable kind of skill even, thanks to which a man was evaluated, how he wielded a sword, how he spoke in verse. The Arabs had all these, but they were not considered educated, they were ummi, but they carried in their memory a huge amount of this oral information, oral folklore, let's say. We cannot imagine what volumes of information they stored, but they remained ummi, it is commoners in this sense, without religious education and religious knowledge. This is the sense in which the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, cannot be called illiterate, or if we call him illiterate, we must understand what kind of illiteracy we are talking about in this case, and in what context. Yes, he could read and write, but he was not religiously educated, and no one, by the way, could tell him that you had learned somewhere in a Jewish school or a Christian school, and now you are telling us stories here although there were such excuses. But with the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, it does not work, because he did not receive such knowledge. In that sense, the Qur'an that he received is kind of a miracle in that sense as well. Now, one more example I will make. In Surah 20, Ayah 114, we have the expression Rabbi zidni rilma. It is translated as Lord, Increase my knowledge. My Lord, increase my knowledge. This is the formulation that is mostly found in translations everywhere. It is based on a lack of understanding of the nature of knowledge and the nature of human. But you do not need to graduate from university to understand this ayah correctly. It is enough just to look at the sentence structure of this ayah to see a simple thing. Here the man is asking his Lord 
not to increase the amount of his knowledge, but to increase himself by the means of knowledge. That is, in the ordinary understanding, man considers that the more books he has read, the more formulas he has learned, the more information he has memorized, the more his knowledge increased, the more he himself has become knowledgeable. Meaning, it is such a habit of us to understand knowledge in such a way as a volume of information. But in the spiritual sense, and the Quran refers specifically to the spiritual side of man, knowledge is what increases man himself, what deepens him, what expands him as a spiritual being. In this sense, in this ayah, Knowledge is presented as an instrument of increasing, deepening, expanding man himself. This is a very sore, I think, a new approach to the translation and understanding of this word. But here is another example I will give. In Surah 56, Ayah 79, there is a phrase that is translated by the word purified, or as purified themselves, meaning that the Quran cannot be touched by people who have not purified themselves. And that is how the word is translated. Although grammatically, if you look at it, I'm not going deep into the Arabic words, because people who are listening to us, only few know Arabic. But we have to remember some concepts from the school program. There are active and passive participles. The active participle is the action that the subject himself does in the action. For example, I am sitting. I say with the participle, I use the participle sitting, that is, I perform this action. Or you could say sit it. This too is a participle. That is a word that shows the development of some process outside of time. Sit it is the passive voice. For example, I read a book is one thing, but if I say the book was read, that's a passive voice verb. That's roughly that read the book is active and to be read is passive. And it's the same here. In this ayah, the word purified. I simply wonder where the distinguished Quranic interpreters or translators were looking, who translated this passive participle as an active participle, and it started to sound like purified themselves. Here Krichkovsky, he correctly noted this point, wrote purified. But that doesn't make much sense either, because the word purified suggests, immediately reminds us of a certain set of Muslim stereotypes of behavior. One of them is about ritual purification. We immediately have an image of a Muslim who performs ritual washing and purification and touches the Quran afterwards. In principle, this is not bad either, but the participle used in the Quran has a passive voice and we have translated it as arranged immaculately pure. Arranged is exactly the word that expresses the passive form of this participle, that the action is done on these people, whether they touch the Quran or not. It sounds very cumbersome in Russian, but if you say it in Tatar, it's very simple there. In the Quran, the word used is translated into Tatar as 
although traditional translations give it as that is, people who have not performed ablution must not touch the Quran, it turns out. And if we translate it correctly, if we just take a word that is agreed upon, there can be no variation there. It is in the passive voice. We should translate it even in the rough mechanical sense, as people over whom the rite of purification have not been performed should not touch the Quran. And who performs this rite of purification? Who performs it on man? Allah alone. Therefore, if that person has not been purified from above, even if he knows the Quran by heart, he will not understand its essence. That is why there are all kinds of sad cases when they read out in the Quran that all infidels must be killed and so on. This is precisely because you may have performed such a mechanical ablution with water ten times, but Allah has not given you the true meaning of the Quran. So you go and do bad deeds. But if Allah has purified a person, then his understanding of the Qur'an goes on a completely different level. And for that, you don't have to make any, I don't know, discoveries. You just, in this case, you just had to translate the passive participle correctly. The way it is, the passive voice. In Russian you should translate it, and in Tata, if you translate it into Tata, you should translate it as passive voice. And let the person who reads draw his own conclusions. Is it about going to the wash basin and performing ablutions, or is it about another kind of purity. And this little nuance, which is not visible at first glance, changes the whole point. Yes, absolutely right. I made two of the most important points. Just increase me with knowledge. Increase me with knowledge, the man asks. Not increase my knowledge. If you need knowledge, go to the library. Increase your knowledge. Sit there all the time or sit on the internet all the time, you will increase your knowledge. And why bother the Lord with such a stupid request, which you can fulfill by satisfying your interest in the library? No, we ask God for a different kind of knowledge, which will increase you, make you more, make you more human, and bring you closer to God. And this is the point with the purified, or those over whom a rite of purification has been performed. Not even a rite, but this supernatural, divine act of purifying the heart of man, which leads to a completely different understanding of the Qur'an, of life in general, of attitudes to life, and behavior respectively. Aydar Garifudinovich, what advice would you give to our viewers, who, after watching our interview, would also like to study this subject more deeply? In fact, in order to set a person on the right path, if you say in words of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, death as a guide is enough. That is, since we are all mortal, then pay attention to this fact of life and, starting from it, begin to build your relations with this world. But since we are touching on a subject as immense as the Qur'an and its contents, with which Allah the Almighty has addressed all mankind, I have such glad tidings for our viewers. Just take the Qur'an in your hands, any translation, you will not find this one, because it is published in a very small edition, but on the internet, inshallah, you can download it. And so, take any translation. I also started with a regular translation of the Qur'an. It is enough to have the right inflexible intentions for any Qur'an to start talking to you, because Allah will always find a way to reach a person, whether through the Qur'an or not through the Qur'an. Anyway, if you can download this Qur'an, that's good too, but it's preferable to have all of them, 
If you also learn Arabic, then there would be nothing else to dream about, maybe. But not everyone has these opportunities. My advice is to just ask yourself, what am I doing in this world here? What did I come here for? We obviously did not come here of our own free will, and we are probably not living here of our own free will. And if you ask these serious questions and at the same time keep this factor that you need the answer at any cost, it is a question of life and death. That is, until the end of his earthly life, man must find something that does not die, so that he does not die with the death that comes to him. In this sense, we are fully armed, each of us, even if we do not have this two-volume translation of the Qur'an. So, I say it again, ask the right question and move in the right direction, and God will put the right tools in your hands at the right time, will arrange the right meetings, and will take you forward on your spiritual path. Thank you very much. Because it would be very selfish if I said, only in this Quran will you find the truth. It's not like that, guys. You can find the truth everywhere, at every step. You just need to have the right inner attitude, and then Allah will help. And if you get your hands on this translation, then it's great. It will ease a lot, probably allow you to bypass some difficulties, to solve them faster. And I also have this advice. If someone seriously wants to plunge into this work, take this translation, whether live or on the Internet, and work comparing it with others. This will be especially interesting to those who speak Arabic. Compare how someone translated it, and then look for why they translated it that way. These are my tips. I thank you for finding me, for doing this interview, and I wish all our viewers great spiritual discoveries. Thank you very much. See you soon.